Well, good morning. Good to be here. If you have a Bible, turn to Luke chapter 3. We'll be uh, in uh, Luke 3 and 4 there, just while you're doing that. Um, it really is. Uh, you're kind of supposed to say this if you're coming as a guest speaker to, some, to somewhere, but I do really mean this. It is a real amazing privilege uh, to step in uh, here this morning. Uh, I'm just so, so conscious that hearing all the stuff that's going on there, I'm so conscious that there's really a beautiful thing going on here. Like there really is. And I think uh, when you're in the middle of church and in the midst of things, sometimes you can miss what's happening, but there really is an amazing sense uh, of community and relationship and God's presence here at work with you. And I just also want to say about Dave Armstrong, I've known, known Dave for a long time. We went to school together, although I was a bit of a toe rag in school and uh, he was probably less said without the better. But uh, in my different interactions with people who, who lead churches and so on, I know you have a fantastic team here, but Dave really is one of the wisest and humblest and kindest that there is. So I want to give props to him. And, uh, you know, really, he really genuinely is one of the best. So that's the soppy bit over. Here we go. I'm joining with you today in your Holy Habits series. Um, so the first thing what I want you to do this morning before you read the passage or anything, is just to fold your hands. Fold your arms like this, all right? And just get yourself in a comfortable position doing that. Just very closed body language. You don't really look like a very welcoming group of people right now with your arms closed. But uh, if you look down and just take note of which one of your wrists is on top of your other wrist there, it's going to be your left or your right. So just have a look. Now, let me have a show of hands. If it's your left wrist that's on top, let's have a look, right? Oh, interesting. Mm, yes. Now, if it's your right, let's have a show of hands. Isn't that funny? I bet you you thought everybody folds their arms the same way. Now, what I want you to try and do is fold your hands, fold your arms the other way. Uh, you see, it's hard, isn't it? It's really difficult. Uh, now, I am sure. Now, you can unfold your arms now because, as I said, you don't look very inviting with all the closed body language. But um, I am sure when you fold your arms, you just do it the way you do. You've never maybe thought about why you do left over right or right over left. You just do it. And you probably do it the same way every time. You don't think, well, today I'm going to fold my arms the other way around because it's actually quite difficult uh, to do. Um, Now, I want you to think through your routine this morning from whenever you got up. Um, And hopefully you brush your teeth. If you brush your teeth, what hand do you brush your teeth with? Probably if you're right-handed, your right hand. Now, as a little experiment, maybe tomorrow or tonight, try and brush your teeth with the other hand. It is so hard to do. I practiced it in preparation for this, and I made a big mess uh, everywhere in my bathroom. Uh, I wonder what uh, sock you put on first this morning. Uh, I wonder when you went to tie your shoelaces, did anybody here have to look up a YouTube video on how to tie shoelaces, or did you just tie them? Or what about if you drove here this morning? Do you remember leaving your house, getting into your car, and the next thing, you're here? How did I get here? You ever had that feeling? You think, oh my goodness, I could have done anything in the way here. I just don't remember. Um, We do so many things out of habit, out of mindless repetition. And there was a study done in 2006 from Duke University in the States, and they found that Every single day, up to 40% of our actions are just done habitually without us having to think about what we're doing. 40% of what you do every single day, which does mean you probably are like part robot, like you just are. 
that we do so many things habitually. We're creatures of habit. Uh, some uh, researcher, William James in 1892, he said, all our life, so far as it has definite form, is but a mass of habits. All we are, in a sense, is a mixture of all our habits. But our habits aren't neutral. There's bad habits, you know, picking your nose, it's a bad habit, socially unacceptable. Bringing your phone to bed with you, it's a bad habit, we'll probably do it. Hard to break that one. There's good habits, sleeping, not bringing your phone to bed with you, sleeping, exercising, flossing your teeth, all good habits. And our habits shape who we're becoming. They're not neutral. Physical habits, our emotional habits, our spiritual habits, all of these things shape the person that we're becoming. And we carry around learned behavior from the past in terms of how we react to things. And maybe they've worked for us in the past and we habitually react to the world that we live in. So it's a, it's a good thing to do a series like this, to take a step back and say, what are the habits in my life and how can I think more intentionally about them? How can I change them so that I am starting to live the Jesus life more and more? Be, have my life kind of overlapped with his life, filled with his life so that I can share it with others. So this morning we're going to look at how as disciples of Jesus, and more actually why as disciples of Jesus, it's important for us to have a habit regarding the scriptures. Because this is central to us thriving as disciples of Christ. And we all have a relationship, I would say, with this book, all of us, um, that at some period of time we've maybe found it inspiring, at some period of time we've found it enlightening, encouraging, but probably also too, some of us here have found this book to be infuriating, confusing, baffling, and dare I say it, even boring. Uh, and as disciples, we need to find a way to handle this book really well. And you might have heard like this absolutely awful acronym, you know, B-I-B-L-E, Basic Instructions Before Leaving Earth. Or, you know, this is like the love letter from Jesus or something like that. And yeah, I understand why people are saying that, but there's more going on. So, with all of being said, let's read. Uh, Luke chapter 3, we're going to read just a couple of verses and then some from Luke chapter 4. Um, I want to chat a little bit about that and then um, we'll move towards the Eucharist. So, Luke 3, 21. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you're my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And then it goes into a genealogy, which is one of these bits that you might find is a bit boring. So we're just going to skip that um, for now and go to, go to chapter four. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here for it is written, 
He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. If you've been around the church for a while, uh, you will probably in all likelihood know this story. And especially as we come into the season of Lent, that's really the inspiration and the history of Lent is found in this story where Jesus undergoes these three trials or three temptations in the desert. More correctly though, I think what's going on in this passage is that Jesus is experiencing one trial in three different forms. And it's a trial that each of us face every day and are under pressure in this kind of same way as Jesus is every day. That although this temptation comes in three guises, there's one thing that's going on here. And that one thing is that in the desert here, the enemy is tempting Jesus to reject the identity and the destiny that God has spoken over him at his baptism. So immediately before this desert experience, Jesus is baptized and God speaks words of identity and destiny over him and says, you are my beloved son, I am well pleased with you. I love you. You're my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the Holy Spirit comes in Jesus. He begins his ministry. And in these three temptations in the desert, Jesus is being tempted to leave behind the identity given to him by God and to take on another identity to become someone else. And this is where for us, when we we become disciples, when we become followers of Christ, God speaks identity over us and he says, you are my beloved son, you are my beloved daughter. I am well pleased in you. There is no performance needed. There is nothing more for you to do. I am well pleased with you. You're accepted and loved and you're part of the family. And as we walk through the world, we are constantly pressured to disbelieve this message from God and to take on an identity that's not our own. Some years ago, I got a phone call from the bank And some of you will probably have got this. I got a phone call from the bank and it turned out that somebody had been trying to steal my identity and I had to change all my passwords and all that sort of stuff. And I kind of laughed. I thought, if you got into my bank account, you would have been surely disappointed. Uh, You might have got like 30 quid or something like that. But, uh, and it was an attempted theft of my identity so that they could take, you know, my inheritance, my stuff. And, you know, I think about sin. I think about brokenness. I think about the human propensity there is to mess things up, it all comes whenever we walk and step out of our true identity, whenever our true identity in God is stolen from us. But whenever we live out our identity as children of God, dearly loved by him, then we have access to all the inheritance. Now, Henry Nouwen, the professor and priest in this passage, identified three basic temptations away from our identity as beloved children of God. And this is what they are. The first is that we are tempted to say this, I am what I do. The second is to say, I am what I have. And the third is to say, I am what others say or think about me. I am what I do. So in verse three, the devil says to Jesus, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. He comes to him and he says, look, Jesus, if you really are the beloved son of God, if you really are who you say you are, do something special to prove yourself. Do something spectacular to prove to the world that you are who you say you are. 
Now, what is, uh, I really found myself doing this this morning, by the way, when I came in. What is like maybe the second or third thing that you ask somebody when you meet them for the first time? You know, you might ask them their name. You might ask them maybe where they're from. But at some point there at the start, you're going to ask them, what is it that you, what is it that you do? Not necessarily that's a bad thing, but it's how we label and how we categorize people by what they do. Implicitly, we label and categorize people according to their performance. Because if somebody says, oh, well, I'm advisor to, I was going to say the president of the United States, but I'm an advisor to some high up person, you'll think, well, that person's here. Or if somebody says, well, you know, I'm, I'm a cleaner, somebody's, you might put them here. And we don't do it on purpose, but it just happens because we categorize people in that way. And God made us with a capacity to work and be productive. And the part of it that's twisted by sin and brokenness is that the capacity to be productive becomes a desire and a drive that is deep within us to have to produce all the time. Uh, I spoke to someone a couple of weeks ago there. They lead a large Christian organization in Northern Ireland, and they were talking about some extended time off that they had. And I said, like, what was the challenge for you in that? And they said, well, the challenge for me in that was, how can I be a Christian and not have to produce stuff all the time? How can I be a follower of Jesus without having to be effective and make things happen? And think about what happens when we lose power and control. Someone gets sick, uh, we freak out. Uh, you know, someone close to us gets sick and we have this sense of part of us, we freak out. Uh, you know, I have plans, I have things to do, I've got five children. When one of them gets sick, what is the emotion that I feel? How do I react? Well, I would like to say I react in compassion. Oh, it's terrible, your arm's falling off. It's horrific. That's how I should, I should react, but often I find myself not reacting like that. I react out of frustration. I say, what? You can't be sick today. I've got things to do. I've got places to go. I've got important things to happen in my life today. I've got to produce lots of things. How dare you be sick? Pull yourself together. Now you all think, I'm a terrible person. But we can also often subtly define ourselves by our level of effectiveness, what we've accomplished We work so hard, we make ourselves sick because deep down we have this unspoken fear that when we are not producing, maybe our life is not worth living. And this is the temptation that is common to all of us. Instead of being a beloved child of God, we are tempted to define ourselves by the things that we do. And some of us maybe especially might be in that place that actually maybe what you do is being taken away from you and you're really struggling with that. But the identity God speaks over you is beloved son or daughter. You don't need to do anything. And then Jesus is tempted to think that he is what he has. Verse five, the devil led him to a high place and showed him all the, in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I'll give you all their authority and splendor. It's been given to me. I can give it to anyone I want. If you worship me, it will all be yours. You know, we all crave safety. We all crave security. And in times past, that maybe would have come from being the best uh, warrior in the tribe or the most adept provider, the best farmer, the one who could accumulate the most stuff so that we could have safety and security. And it's our stuff. We may not, we may be farmers. We've heard some farmers. We may not be warriors. We may not be farmers, but our sense of security comes from our stuff 
from our bank balance or what sits in the driveway represents how secure and safe we are. Um, None of us like to think of ourselves as materialistic. Nobody is going to say, well, I'm very materialistic. Nobody's going to say that. But whenever our things symbolize safety for us, then we are starting to be defined by what we have. We're trained to accumulate stuff in the name of wisdom, in the name of safety. But we work more, we worry more, we want more. We're never satisfied. But Proverbs 30, I love this prayer in Proverbs 30. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? You know, I don't need you. Or I might become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. So the way of wisdom is to have just enough so that we're not in despair, but we're still trusting God. But because we have this human drive for a safety net, we want to accumulate more and more and more. Whereas Jesus here says, listen, I don't need to have all this authority. I don't need to have all this stuff. I don't need to have the security of knowing I have authority over all these things in order to know that I'm a deeply loved child of God. And you know, we can buy the subtle belief that our possessions insulate us from the risks that come from being human. That all of us, no matter what we own, no matter how hard we work for our security, the bad things of life will still come. Trouble will still come. We will not be insulated from those things. You are my beloved son and daughter. So you see how Jesus uses the scriptures here. In verse eight, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So he's tempted to be defined by what he does. He's tempted to be defined by what he has. And in both those situations, he uses the scriptures to pull himself back to his true identity. And finally, I am what other people say or think about me. So the devil leads him to Jerusalem and stands him up in the highest point and says, listen, if you really are the son of God, the scriptures are written about you. You have this reputation. You have this status. You have this place. If you throw yourself down from here, God himself says he will rescue you. Test out your reputation. I am what other people say or think about me. Or more accurately, I am what I think other people might be saying or possibly perhaps think about me. I can't quite tell because I can't read people's minds, but I'm going to let it keep me up at night anyway. We have this need for esteem. We have a need for affection. We want to be thought well of others. We crave the buzz in the pocket to open it and say, like, 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 comment, comment, like, new follower, new friend, whatever. We want approval. I will go home today and drive home in the car and I will think, what did they think of me in that place? We all do it. And I read something somewhere during the week um, and it said something like this, you know, we may all be adults, I think most of us. We may all be adults, but actually what we're really like is awkward teenagers on the first day of a new school, in the canteen, holding our lunch tray, desperately looking about for someone who's going to let us sit down beside him or her. That's basically how we navigate life, nervously looking for someone to accept us. Wondering if I go there, if I sit there, if I interact with them, will I get accepted? Will I be esteemed or will I be rejected? And you know, some of us, we really struggle with this. When you have to say no to people, 
when you have to make unpopular decisions, maybe at work, or when someone just doesn't like you and you don't know why, or you think they don't like you and you don't know why. When we feel misunderstood, when we feel misrepresented, when we feel rejected, how do we respond? Uh, I'm coming to learn, I think, that we have to be at peace with the fact that in this life, we are going to be misunderstood sometimes. We are going to be disliked sometimes. We are sometimes going to be rejected. And that's unpleasant, but it does not need to crush us. And the scriptures pull Jesus back and us back. You don't need to test how much God loves you. You don't need to be defined by your reputation, by how highly you're held by someone else. But you trust God wholeheartedly and know I'm a beloved child of God. You are his beloved son and daughter. So in these three trials, I mean, we could spend loads of time digging into those things about I am what I do, I am what I have, I am what people say or think about me. But look how Jesus uses the scriptures. That's the point of what I'm saying to you this morning. That he has uh, soaked himself so much in the story of God. He locates himself in the story of God so heavily that whenever he he, he is tempted in this way. He's able to spot the lies of the enemy and he's able to be called back to his true identity in the Father because he has a relationship with these scriptures. The story of God written in the Bible shapes how we think about ourselves, how we think about the world, how we think about God. And when we know them and locate ourselves in them, then we will thrive as followers of Christ. They remind us who we are. They remind us whose we are and the inheritance that we have as God's people. Now, people think about the Bible. There's loads of things that are extraordinary about it. What I think the most extraordinary thing about the Bible is that although it was written as 66 different books over maybe 4,000 years, maybe a bit more than that, by 40 or so editors on three continents, in multiple genres, the extraordinary thing about it is that there is one overarching story contained within it. And you can argue and niggle and so on about the various little details and you know, we can talk about that. But the overarching narrative is a coherent one. It is one that makes sense. And it is not a love letter from God. It is not an Ikea manual for life. It's not basic instructions before leaving earth. It's the normative story that we are to soak in and find our identity from. And we're bombarded with different stories every day. You watch BBC, you get one story about the world. You watch Al Jazeera, you get another story about the world. You read Richard Dawkins, you get one story about the world. You read Pope Francis, and you get a different story about the world. Uh, most of us probably get our news from Facebook, which is designed to keep us uh, in the belief system that we already hold. So the news you get fed on Facebook is because it lines up with the things you've already liked and commented on and are interested in. And these things shape how we think about ourselves and where we are in the world and what's going on in the world and what God is all about. And advertisements, how advertisements work, you know, which we're bombarded with constantly, they work by telling us a story that you're pretty inadequate until you have this product in your life or you need it for whatever reason. They tell us the story of inadequacy. But in the narrative of the scripture, we get a counter story. We get a new story. We get the original story as to what the world is about, what God is about, what meaning is about. And when we saturate ourselves in it, 
we find ourselves thriving because we know who we are and whose we are. And the story kind of goes like this. And I'll leave bits out, but God created the world as good and his people made with dignity, value, and worth, every one equal in his eyes and good. Sin enters the world, renders us in this problem of humanity, which is that we are simultaneously beautiful and broken. That humans are capable of the greatest good and also the cruelest of evils. And the human problem really is how we navigate this line between being broken and being beautiful creatures. And that's the fault line of sin that's in each of our lives. God moves towards humankind in love. Jesus is what God has to say to the world about what it means to be human. The cross and the resurrection enables us to be reunited to God again, to have that brokenness begin to be dealt with as his spirit changes us. And God is in the process then in history of bringing heaven to earth through his church so that one day the realm of heaven and the realm of earth will overlap and one day his kingdom will come in fullness and all will be made right again. All the brokenness and crookedness will be straightened out. And the whole thing is, finds its culmination in Jesus being enthroned as king. That's the story. That's the story that we are called to inhabit and live in. That history is going in a direction where Everything that is not right is going to be made right again by God and that we find our place as renewed people who, yeah, we struggle with brokenness. We struggle with the three temptations. We struggle with all that stuff, but we know that the spirit of God is leading us on a trajectory of wholeness to see his kingdom come. And we need to find habits, to talk about holy habits, to soak in this story, to locate ourselves in it and to call us back to our true identity as beloved children of God. Now, if you think about eating, right? I'm starting to think about eating now because it's quarter past 12. Not every meal is memorable. You know, because we rest with the Bible when it comes really down to the practicalities, like, how do I read it? How do I I interact with this? It's so confusing. It's like, do I read a lot at a time? Do I read a short amount of time? How do I interact with it? If you think about eating, you don't remember every meal that you have. Some meals are fast food and you shove them in and they're over and they're forgotten about. Some are slow, enjoyed around a table with friends and they take hours. Some are special occasions that you repeat time and time again. Some are nutritious. Some are not as nutritious. And you know, if you skip a meal, you're still gonna live. But if you skip too many, it's going to affect your health. And if you don't eat, you're going to shrivel and die. We need to find habits of interacting with the scriptural story that is like eating. That we don't always need to read five chapters at a time and memorize it and do it. We don't need to do all that. But we need to find ways of having a diet that eventually shapes us and forms us. Now, in terms of the how... You know, there's loads of different ways and you're intelligent people like you can work those things out but there's kind of maybe four ways in which we can build a habit of getting shaped by this story and the first is to get ourselves in habits of hearing the story hear the story that there's teachers and guides in the church that one of the reasons we gather together is to hear the story interpreted to us from somebody else. Not that that person's always going to be right, not that they're always going to have good things to say, but we're given people who can proclaim this story over our lives 
to teach us and guide us. And again, every Sunday, every sermon is not going to be a home run. Everyone's not going to be a nutritious meal, but it all contributes to us being shaped. And you know, we have books, we have podcasts, etc. So we need to build disciplines in our life of hearing the story. Uh, we need to secondly sing the story, which is one of the reasons why we sing. Not just to kind of get the atmosphere in the room up a bit, but to be taught that the vocabulary of the kingdom of God as we sing. And John Wesley, the old Methodist, uh, and Charles Wesley, his brother, put so many uh, great hymns together as a way of teaching the people because they couldn't read, they were mere illiterate. So they taught the people through their songs and our songs shape us. When you think about this, a teenager or something like that listening to, to music, just normal pop music, whatever's out there, it shapes how they see the world. And it's the same when we sing. So we hear the story, we sing the story, we read the story. We need to get a plan, each of us, and this is pretty old school sounding, but it's simple. We need to have a plan for just being able to interact with this for ourselves. And, you know, not everyone's a reader, but these scriptures were originally meant to be heard. In their original language, they're, they're, they're oral stories. So I, confession, I don't read my Bible as much now as I used to, but I listen to it more than I used to. Like, just when you're driving, when you're in the shower, whenever you just, just have an audio version of the Bible on and you begin to be shaped by the story and it comes alive in a new way because it's supposed to be spoken out. We need to find ways of reading the story. We need to find ways of praying the story. Slow reading, Lectio Divina and different things like that. Meditating on passages of scripture. Always having a notebook beside our open Bible to journal what God is saying to us. So we hear the story, we sing the story, we read the story, we pray the story. What are the habits that you can build into your life so that you can be shaped by this great narrative? So that you can find again that you're not defined by what you do, you're not defined by what you have, you're not defined by what other people say or think about you, you're defined by what God says in this story, which is that he has saved you to be his beloved child, his beloved son and daughter. I want to read uh, John 5, 39 to 40, where I think Jesus really comes and calls us again to think about what we do with our scriptures. Uh, In a highly critical way, he comes to the Pharisees and the religious leaders, and he says to them, listen, you study the scriptures thoroughly because you think in them you possess eternal life. It's actually not that. It's these same scriptures that testify about me, but you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. This story is all about Jesus, the living word. He's the one who the scriptures point to. And so even this morning as we open this, the the other important thing that we're gonna do is come again to him in the Eucharist. And we're gonna let him speak to us as the living word. But I want to challenge you this morning as you go, what are your habits for interacting with the scriptures? Are there things that you can do to help you hear it more, to help you read it more, to help you sing it more, to help you pray it more? To let it shape you, to let it permeate your life, to let it begin to affect how you think and feel and see the world, to call you back to that identity as a beloved son and daughter.